Okay, as we arrive at verse 12. As you're gaining your bearings, I do want to make you aware of something you may have already noticed. When you came in, you may have sat on one of these. They're everywhere today. This is just a reminder that in the month of May, we will be having our Loving the City offering. So we'll be, um, if you're a member here, you know all about that. We'll just keep talking about it coming up in May. Now, if you're not a member here, then uh, that, that's why we have these everywhere. Uh, if you're interested as to where the money will go that we're all committed to give, uh, we've got a booth set up that you may have seen on your way in, uh, the different aspects, the different ministries here in the city that we try to touch with the gospel, as well as sending some of these funds overseas to work with some of our missionaries. So that's what this is all about. I just want to pray that God would move as we have a teaching here from His Word. And uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll look together at Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Let's pray. God, it's a mighty thing to say, come and move. And we don't say it lightly. Because if you come, God, we will be transformed. Change is hard. But I dare ask you to change each and every one of us this morning through the preaching of your word. Some of us, God, have never seen you before. Some of us walked in unawares of your greatness and your glory. And so I pray that you strike them, the glory of Jesus. And some of us, God, know you intimately, and yet we need to be conformed more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you do that. Thank you for adopting us as your people, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of your will. And I pray that even today you will grant us much joy in worship through the reading of your scriptures together. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What comes out when you are squeezed? That's my question. What comes out when you are squeezed? Here's an example. 2011, a foreign aid worker named Jessica Buchanan, she was working for an organization in Somalia, and her job was to teach people how to identify where landmines were because there are generations of Somalians who have grown up amputees because they don't know how to figure out where the bombs are going to blow up. So she was working there, and it was a pretty routine day for Jessica. She was going from her apartment to a training center and all of a sudden, her Jeep was pulled over by a posse of Somali terrorists. They jumped out with their AK-47s, drug her into their automobile, took her phone, took her passport, took her out, drove her for hours into the middle of nowhere, and then they kicked her out of the, the vehicle, and they said, March, take off. And so she took off, walking deep into the shrubbery, and she finally got to a place, and they said, that's okay. At gunpoint, they said, now turn around, face away from me, and kneel down on your knees and bow your head. And she thought to herself, this is it. This is the end. This is how they execute people. And what comes out in that moment when you're squeezed? Thankfully, she survived and went on to endure a three-month harrowing experience. Uh, being kidnapped there and uh, all kinds of atrocities were going on. And if you're trained as an NGO worker in these contexts, they will give you something that they call a proof of 
life number. Proof of life number is a number, a phone number you're supposed to memorize so that uh, if you're abducted, you could call, your terrorists can call that number and actually talk to someone who might have money because the motivation of people to kidnap you is to get money from the rich Americans. And so she had a proof of life call and they called it and she said, oh, maybe now there'll be a negotiation. The terrorist said, we're not letting her go until you give us $40 million. Oh, no way anybody's going to come up with $40 million. For me, what, what comes out when you're squeezed? Finally, thankfully, in January 25th, 2012, President Barack Obama um, ordered for an, a team of Navy SEALs to go in and try to take Jessica back. So they parachuted in this crack special ops team and it came crashing through um, the brush at one moment and she freaked out. She heard the shots. She heard people screaming. So she ducked under her blanket and then somebody grabbed her through the blanket. She went at him tooth and nails, man. She was fighting. And finally, she heard her name in English, Jessica, Jessica. She knew that her rescuer had finally come and she was ready to go, man. What comes out when you're really squeezed? It's a good question for all of us to ask spiritually, right? When the chips are down, when things are tight, when we're feeling pressed, what comes out when we're squeezed? And that's the point we are actually at in our text, in the story of Paul. He's in jail, potentially death row. He's being squeezed right now. If we look at his life, we see what comes out. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. What is it that comes out of Paul during his hardest moments? It's the gospel We're going to look at it in four ways here, if you're taking notes. First, we're going to notice the preeminence of the gospel. Second, the progress of the gospel. Thirdly, the person of the gospel. And finally, we will look at the production of the gospel here. So let's read together in verse 12, looking for the preeminence of the gospel coming out in Paul's life. Listen to what he says. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And when you're reading the Bible, it's really important to pay attention to how things are arranged. The structure of the letter really matters here. And the way this letter, Philippians, is set up, he's used the first 11 verses that we've already gone through just to say, hi. You've heard of long goodbyes. This is a long hello. He spent 11 verses saying, hey, and now he's getting past the high and to the point where he's going to say something very substantial. In verses 12 through 26, he's going to address the church's concerns about the fact that their founding church planter has been 5 would He's been in jail, right? He's in the clink. And they're worried about this. This is the concern if your main leader is now in the slammer. They're so concerned that later in the letter we'll learn that they've sent a good man with a long name, Epaphroditus, to see Paul and to make sure he's doing okay. And so he now begins in verse 12 to respond to them. And what's interesting, if you see this phrase here in the ESV is particularly, phrase that says, I want you to know that. You see that in verse 12? I want you to know that. That was actually an ancient formula of sorts that would address the most preeminent, the most important thing. So when you said this phrase, I want you to know that, then the most important thing would come next. We have examples of this in ancient literature. We actually have copies of 
2,000-year-old letter from a soldier on the field who's writing back to his mama. This guy's name is Theonis, and he writes, Theonis, to his mother and lady, Tethius, very many greetings. So he says hi. And then he says, I want you to know that, mamas, what do you think he's going to tell her? What does every mama want to know? He says, I want you to know that the reason I've not sent you a letter is that I've been in camp. It's not that I'm sick. It's not that I have an illness, right? He knew exactly what would be most important on, uh, to his mama, and he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Something never changed. Now, if you contrast this, it's very common for a soldier to say, don't worry, mom, I'm okay. You haven't heard from him, but okay. Contrast that with what Paul is saying. It's quite amazing. What would you expect Paul to say being in captivity? You might expect him to say, don't worry, I'm not sick. Uh, or maybe even, it's okay, they're not beating me up, right? Or even the standard jailhouse cry, hey, I'm innocent. What's up, right? He doesn't say any of these things, right? Instead, what does he say there? He said, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance what? The gospel. See him being squeezed? See what coming out there? It's amazing, right? Famous apostles say, what? What do you, what do you say? Why would he say that? Why would he hone in on that instead of any other number of personal concerns that we might say? In his proof of life message, why isn't he concentrating on anything else? It almost sounds backwards when, when you think about it. It's almost like um, at my house, you see this a lot. Maybe think of a toddler who's um, sucking their thumb, walking. They're going down the stairs, and they're dragging behind them this uh, stuffed bear, right? And they're coming down the stairs, and all of a sudden, the toddler trips and takes a serious fall, and you run over. And you would never sweep up the bear and say, Teddy, are you okay? You know, it's backwards, Right? Just what it feels like when Paul in prison says, I want you to know, everybody, the gospel's okay. That's exactly what Paul is saying to us. Why, why would he worry? Shouldn't he be concerned more about his health or his career? I'm not sure the kind of work tent makers can get after they have felonies. I'm not sure about that. He's not able to now make uh, leaders be trained up like Timothy. He's no longer able to oversee his church planting. Everything that was so important to him has been stripped away and it's amazing that all these concerns take a back seat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows that his master and King Jesus Christ has given him and the church a joint mission that is bigger than himself. That mission is to advance the gospel at all costs. And so he begins to view his life by that standard. In all circumstances, how is Christ going to be magnified? That's the way he's able to view his life. And there's a take-home here for us, right? There's an action point from here. Without undermining the severity of the situation Paul is in or um, overlooking any abuse he might be having emotionally or physically, knowing the anxiety he must be going through, still Paul can glory in the magnification of Christ. You feel how real that is? How tangible that is? I, I can work with that. Sometimes I feel like other people see me as a failure. Ever feel that way? Some of us have been genuinely victimized and abused. Many of us are facing physical sickness and even death, but we can take hope like Paul 
that Christ can be magnified in the middle of these situations. In spite of our failure, in spite of our pain, in spite of our abuse, that even in spite of our death. Now the key, the key to working through this mentally and making this go in your own life is understanding how your own story works. Understanding how your own life story works. I read not too long ago a short story, a famous short story from the 1800s it's called the Musgrave Ritual. And it's about this uh, rich family who have uh, passed down this homestead for 200 years from kid to kid to kid to kid. And uh, with each passing down, the kids, um, they inherit the family crest, the family shield, but they also uh, are inherit what's almost like the family catechism. It's a bunch of questions where the kids are made to memorize, and as they grow up, um, they're just left, and they know for the rest of their life this, this weird catechism. In, in the story, the questions that the kids have to learn are like, uh, whose was it? Or his who is gone. Who shall have it? He who will come. Over and over again, they're, they're memorizing these weird um, questions and answers. And they all grew up and they thought that, well, maybe this was a character building thing that great grandpa did. Or maybe it, it, it's like our, our, our coat of arms. We're just supposed to look at it and think, ah, that's who our family is and take comfort identity in it. And everything was going well for the Musgrave family until one day the patriarch, you know, the oldest living Musgrave, started noticing weird things were happening in his house. Uh, servants were starting to disappear. Things were missing in the home. He caught one longtime loyal servant uh, robbing from him. And he's like, what in the world going on? Well, what had happened was some clever servant had actually found out that this kitty catechism that all the adults and the kids learned as they were growing up was actually an oral treasure map. And as they were saying it, it wasn't about the family at all. It was actually the treasure map that led to the crown of King Charles I. I read that story and I thought, man, a lot to do with the Christian life. Are we willing, like Paul, to accept that the lyrics of our life song, they're not chiefly about us. The song that I've been singing and thought was my own was actually written about a king. It was written about King Jesus. And that's the way Paul is able to magnify Christ no matter what circumstance he's going through. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism says the same, same thing in this way. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've used a catechism like this with your kids. It says, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. They understood. Whatever happened in life, whatever happened in death, this belongs not to me. The story is not about me. The story is about Jesus. And God will write it as he may in order that the king of the universe will stand out, stand up and be magnified. And so this gives us some homework, right? We can use this right away in proclaiming to ourselves proclaiming the good news to ourselves. It might look like this. Whenever you're struggling this week, depending on what you're struggling with, I want you to know that my husband's lack of vision can really serve to magnify Christ. Right? I want you to know that my hibernating romantic life can really serve to magnify Christ. I want you to know that my two-year-old's 38th straight tantrum can actually serve to magnify Christ. I want you to know that my malignant tumor can actually serve 
to magnify Jesus Christ. If we are able to see all of our life as a part of Jesus' bigger story, then we are able to rejoice. And it's actually good news because we know how Jesus' story ends. Victory, triumph, joy. And all the world will bow and worship the risen King. That's good news. Secondly, here in the text, I want to point you to the progress of the gospel. Verses 13 and 14, we see this. Not just the preeminence of the gospel, but also the progress of the gospel. Read with me in verse 13. So it's now become known throughout the whole imperial guard, writes Paul, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. And recall what I said earlier about how order and structure matters when you're trying to get the meaning out of these Bible texts. Uh, here we see it happens too. It's, you have to uh, notice this in verse 12. There's a word in the ESV, uh, advance. See that there, uh, advance in verse 12. Now compare that in verse 25 to another word, progress. So at, the, at the start of the section, you have the word advance. At the end of the section, you have the word progress. And they serve as kind of the bread on the sandwich here, the boundaries. And also, since those two words in the original language are the same, progress, advance, the same word, they tell you what the whole section is about. So we're eating a big progress burger here, right? That's what we're supposed to get from this text. Uh, at, the, at the start of it, it's the progress of the gospel. At the finish, it's the progress of the faith. This is all about advancement. And how do we see the gospel advance here? We see it advance in a couple ways. Outwardly and then inwardly to believers. Outwardly to unbelievers and inwardly. Let's look at outwardly first. The gospel has progressed outwardly by going to the royal guards and the people of the area, we learn in verse 13. If we read where he wrote, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is what? For Christ. In what way is his imprisonment for Christ? There's a couple of reasons. First, his imprisonment is for Christ in the sense that as he's being imprisoned, he is cooperating and experiencing the sufferings of Jesus. And it was through suffering that Jesus gained ultimate victory in his cross work while he was on earth. And Paul also sees that through his imprisonment, the gospel will also have victory. It's beginning to spread to the guards here. Very similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so Paul is feeling it, man. He says, my imprisonment's actually for Christ because I'm, I'm, I'm living in, mixing with the sufferings of Jesus. And he will be proclaimed through this. The other way that his imprisonment is for Christ is that apparently he's talking about Jesus a lot. Imagine the prison guards on some type of a rotation and one guy comes in and Paul's got a captive audience, right? It's his, it's his dream job. Like, well, as long as I'm in chains and you have to guard me, here you go for 12 hours. And he's sharing the gospel and then the next guy comes in, the next guy, and eventually it has this trickle effect throughout all of the uh, Roman guard there. But I want to challenge you here and also give you hope at the same time. In this same sentence, here's the sentence. 
Gospel advancement depends on you but extends further than you. Gospel advancement depends on you but it extends. It depends and it extends further than you would ever expect. This is what I mean by that. God has just arranged it. He has planned it. He has ordained it that his kingdom and church be built by gospel proclamation. If we are going to grow, if we are going to reach the city, if we're going to love the world and see the nations come, we've got to speak about Jesus in the gospel. There's a thousand ways we, have, we can do it. You can just do it with friends that you know. Some of us like to do it with strangers. You can do it within the context of a relationship. I could speak about it now and I haven't met some of you before. There's a lot of different ways we can speak about the gospel, but it has to be proclaimed if the church is going to be built. Paul says this in Romans 10, 14. How can non-Christians even believe if they've never heard? And how can they hear if nobody proclaims, preaches the gospel? So we get that. But here's the catch. I don't know if you're ever hindered by in sharing the gospel. Sometimes I think, I, I'm not going to share with this guy, my neighbor or my family member. Of course, they know me. I know them. I'm not going to share with them because I know what their response is going to be, right? We've talked about this before, maybe. Or even, I know how he lives his lifestyle. It's a little scary. It's going to mess things up, even in the relationship. So I may not even proclaim. But here's the truth that we see. The gospel spreads far beyond what you can imagine. Paul never thought about the gospel going to the whole imperial guard and to everybody else in the area, he said. He probably only spoke to just a small fraction of the people. And they may have walked away and they may have said, listen to what the crazy prisoner did in there. He changed his name. It used to be Saul, but now they call him Paul. And he was saying this about a dead guy coming to life. And the message carried forward. And at some points, other people could have started passing on, passing on, but had a life of its own. So don't underestimate what God can do with the gospel. It's like what's coming up here in season. Right now, this week is the first season in North Carolina for Strawberries, come on, don't we all love strawberries? It's coming up, that's right. Get your pail, go to the strawberry farm and get your berries. I remember I planted strawberries one time in my own little miniature patch and I thought I was doing very well. I lined up all my corn, planted it and corn went bam in a row like a sensible vegetable. I had my okra, I planted it in a row, it stood tall, went that way. For the most part, the beans, they're on poles, they're gonna go up and then the, over here is my strawberry plant, 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 plant. Man, what but a month later, I go out there. What happened to the strawberries? Man, they're everywhere. They're all up on the corn. They're surrounding the okra. They don't grow in rows. They go crazy everywhere. You can't contain them. That's the way the gospel is. You have no idea what God is going to do with it. It is going to touch in ways that you can't fathom. That's the glory of it. And Paul understands this. Here at TCC, we invite you to proclaim in this city, whatever context you're in. We're also trying to proclaim across the world in different cities, in different contexts. Back in the Philippians, I want us to notice that um, as we see in verse 14, that the gospel is not just going out to unbelievers, but it's also having an impact with believers in the community. And uh, think about the picture again. Paul's life at this point is ruined. He's in prison. 
Uh, he's not able to do his job. People are worried about him. And other believers are looking on. And what happens now is amazing. It's like they're like, oh, wait a minute. The gospel is not being stopped here. He's having a really hard life. But the gospel is keep going. Maybe I can't be stopped either. Right? As they're watching him from afar, they're like, hey, maybe God can use me to keep preaching the gospel faithfully. And so in 14, in 14, we read this, and most of the brothers, that's the other people who are believers surrounding them, most of the brothers having become what? Confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The believers are now confident having seen Paul go through all of this stuff to proclaim. What's the lesson to be learned here? One man's crud is another man's confidence, right? One man's bad stuff can be another man's confidence. And we need to learn how to be both men. Take, for instance, the man with the suffering. Suffering's everywhere. And I know you all are going through something. I just want to encourage you. You never know how God might be drawing a crowd to what you're going through. You might be thinking that your suffering is only about one thing, but God could be drawing a crowd so that people see what you're going through and they lift up Jesus Christ. They are confident in the Lord. They are magnifying Jesus because of what somebody's going through. And then that's if you're the man going through the suffering. But what about the man watching the man going through suffering? What about somebody you're observing, your friend who's having a real hard time? Here's what you can learn. Let it land on you. How God doesn't leave them during the suffering, right? There's another brick of their faith, brick upon brick. Their wall is stronger now because of what God is doing. They're not turning their back. They're being tested. They're being tested and they're coming out with flying colors. You know, we, we met this week uh, as community group leaders. This weekend, we had a retreat a couple days out in the woods at the time each year when all the community group leaders get together and we plot against you. No. <laughs> that's one of those jokes that's so close that you're thinking, hey, are you plotting? No, we come together, we're encouraging one another, we're praying, we're having a good time. And there's a time where we begin to share what's going on in your life. And it's amazing, as I was sitting there, people have hard times. One person's like, I've I've got a physical struggle in my family that's just been a journey. Another person says, I'm just physically dry. Another person's emotionally broken. It almost felt like there was some satanic, demonic attack going on. And so we prayed, and I, I walked away from there thinking, man, this is a hard season. But even more than that, I walked away from there in confidence. It was kind of like, hey, my sister's going through that. I didn't know that. And yet she's still producing fruit, right? She's having to deal with this in her life. And yet the gospel's coming out of her mouth. It's amazing the confidence that I got just in diving into someone else's junk, someone else's crud. You've heard, this, you've heard the expression, chew the cud. We need to learn how to chew. Never mind. We've got to learn how to make someone else's suffering a spiritually beneficial time for us. Uh, and here's something else. Um, famous, famous uh, theologian, his name, maybe he's not too famous, but he's a theologian, a guy named J. Todd Billings. He's a theologian, he's a book writer, 
He's also dying of cancer. And he wrote a book recently, a book called Rejoicing in Lament that I'm reading through right now, and it's a good story. And he's a believer, and he says things like, uh, even, uh, even as he's weakened by chemo and his, his, his whole body is falling apart, he'll throw down lines like this. He'll say, as we lament and petition and as we hope in God's promises right now amid all the calamities that seem senseless to us, we can join the psalmist and trust that God can make things right in a way that we can only faintly imagine. And then he quotes Psalm 78. 7 through 9, which says this. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Folks, your suffering is just a pop quiz. It's not the final Todd Billings is able to look ahead to the ultimate final victory in Jesus Christ. And as I'm reading this, think, man, what a faith. And I'm encouraged, right? I'm reading this book. And I jump in there with it. I'm lamenting with it. Oh, man, this is rough. What if it happened to me? I can't, your family. And, but then I step away from it. I'm tremendously encouraged. Jump into another suffering like Paul and let it give you confidence in the Lord. Third thing I want to talk about, we've seen the preeminence gospel, the progress of the gospel, finally here, uh, the person of the gospel, 15 through 18 are the verses. I'll read them now. Some indeed preach Christ. So listen to what happened. Paul has been in prison. It's led to a preaching revival. Now everybody's a preacher during a revival time. So everybody's proclaiming now. And, and Paul says there's some problems here. First, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others preach from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former, get this, as if things could not get any worse. Some people, the former people, are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but they're thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They're pointing at me. They're pointing their guns at me while I'm down. What should I make of this? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. You get the picture there? Amazing. Paul is able to discern two different types of motivations in these people. One, the people, they, they preach out of pure motivation. They see Paul there and they say, I love him. I'm so thankful for his ministry. I'm filled with gratitude. I'm going to share Christ too. But there's this other group kicking him while he's down. They have impure motives. Not that they're preaching a false gospel. That's not it at all. It's that if they're sitting there stroking their beards, saying, aha, I see Paul is down. Maybe I can now preach and I can have an influence in his churches, right? He's a rock star of a preacher. Maybe now he's getting his and I'll be elevated a little bit. That's the selfish ambition. Paul will stay down. I will stay up. All I have to do is preach this gospel he's preaching. So they're preaching it. And how does he react? They're punking him to death. What does he say? That's all right. Christ is being preached. Where does that come from? Where does this ability to take it on the chin and still say, it's okay if these people are stabbing me. 
as long as Christ is being preached. It's because he knows the gospel is not about Paul or any of the other preachers. That's not the person of the gospel. The person of the gospel is Jesus Christ, and it's all about the glory and the greatness of Christ. And these underlying motivations that are evil aren't shattering Christ. He's too big. There's something more at stake here than Paul's ego, right? Reminds me, when I was growing up, I used to have a lot of dogs. I lived kind of out in the country. Uh, I don't I live in a subdivision now, so I don't have a dog. But I used to have a lot of dogs. There were no leash laws, so it was, it was a jungle wall out there, right? And uh, I had this one dog that my father refused to get fixed, and she was always pregnant. She was a Weimaraner. If you've ever seen a Weimaraner, they're goopy, ugly-looking dog. Sorry if you're here and you're a Weimaraner, but they are ugly. And uh, she would, like, she would, a chow would come around, you know, a bulldog would come around. And those are weird-looking pups, right? Weimaraner, chow, Meg. And then little Dotson would come around. You'd get a mix of that. So she's, she's always pregnant. And I was always amazed that instinctively, when she would have the, the babies, you know, for the next eight weeks or whatever, she would lay on her side, and then all eight of these pups would just attack her when they went to eat. And they'd be chewing on her ear. They'd be clawing her all up. There'd be blood. Her face would be like, oh, it was so bad for her. And at some point, she'd just stand up and walk away, and they'd be hanging, dangling from her, and she'd just take off. And I always thought, man, she just, how can she expose herself? Delicate underbelly. She's bleeding now. How can she just, because instinctively, she knew that something was at stake more than her comfort. was the life of her puppies was at stake. So she would gladly open herself up. And that's what we are called to do. God might be calling you to expose your delicate underbelly of your ego, right? And be willing to take it because there's something more valuable at stake. Not about your pain. Not about your embarrassment. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ. The life that can be produced through the gospel. Christ is so valuable, ultimately, was the value of Christ that pushed Paul forward, right? And again, at the community group retreat we had this weekend, someone shared this verse, and, um, you know, you could, you could preach a thousand sermons on what the chief motivation of Paul, which is the glory of Jesus, but I just want to share one little passage from Colossians 1.15. It's a famous passage, but I invite you into this passage to see Jesus afresh, so that you might be motivated to proclaim Christ as Paul. Here's his motivation. Colossians 1.15 says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for Jesus. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the first one from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy 
in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. That's the good news. That is the good news. Believers, if you are here, meditate on this early and often. The glory of Jesus is what will free you up to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And if you're here as a guest and you're not even a follower of Jesus, you're just coming here, I get that too. I want you to understand what Christ has done for all who trust in Him. He brings the alienated, the enemies of God, to Himself by His death. There was a gap, an alienation, that only Christ, because He is both God and man, could cross. And He has done that for all who turn to Jesus and say, He's enough! Kendra was spot on when she said, the people, she works in a Muslim culture, if you didn't know that. She said, the people here, everybody has a point system. Point, 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 point. I got to God. I got enough point. It's no different than here. We all have that. We're all trying to work ourselves towards something that is our God. But only Jesus will lead us to the true experience of the living God. Finally, one last, one last point I'll sneak in here from verse 18. And that's the production of the gospel. If you read through this, look at what Paul says on the last verse. After he says, what am I going to do? That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I take joy. Yes, I will rejoice. Did you notice something about this passage? It's all about the gospel spreading, but we're never told that one single convert has been made. We're just told that the gospel is being proclaimed. That might be your experience. It's been my experience sometimes. I proclaim. I don't get a ton of converts, but I tell you what I do get. I get the joy of Christ in the proclamation. This year, we're going hard after enjoying God as a church. One sure avenue toward joy in Jesus is the speaking of the gospel to one another, but also to unbelievers. Because when you let it out, something that's in here, something that's true, something that's real, when you let it out, God will supernaturally give you the joy in the telling. And you can rejoice that the gospel has gone forth. Rejoice that this story that's much bigger than your own is being told rightly. I was reading this week a book about a revival in the uh, early 80s that lasts on through the 90s in California where churches were going from 50 to 5,000 and God was working in crazy ways. And what they would do is they would have a teaching time in the revival service and then they would have what they called a clinic time. And I thought, well, we can do that, right? What we're going to do here during the Lord's Supper is I'm going to invite you to meditate on Jesus of the gospel, how you might proclaim that, from that, take the joy. In the Lord's Supper, what we have, taking bread that represents the crushed body of Jesus and, and the, the cup that represents the spilt blood of Jesus. And we take them inside ourselves and we're supposed to be owning, eating, drinking who Jesus is. As we do that, I invite you to meditate on Colossians 1.15. Think deeply about Jesus. Imagine Him in your mind. Think about the truth of him, think about proclaiming him, how you'll proclaim him to yourself, to your friends, to members in the church, to your family. And stop 
cutting off your own joy. Experience the joy of Paul as we go deeper together here. So I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. If you're a guest here and you're a believer, you're welcome to come to one of the three tables and take the elements back to your chair. And then as you're praying, you can take, uh, take the element. Uh, if you're a guest here and you're not a follower of Christ, we ask that you just watch because it's kind of a family thing. So um, it's for everyone who's a Christian. So we're going to do that now after I pray. So let's pray together. Father, I ask myself before you, even for this congregation, I ask, how must we die a little bit this week so that your son Jesus might be seen? In what way would you have us open up and expose our sensitive parts so that the gospel might be proclaimed and in that we might take a full joy of Jesus. I pray that you show that to us now, God, and I pray for strength in the proclamation. I know the Houstons well, well enough to know that they grow weary. They need your strength and we do too. Anyone who undertakes a serious spreading ministry where we're actively trying to talk to people about Christ and not just small talk. It's hard, so I pray that you strengthen our people. And during this time, God, during these moments right now, as we take the supper, as we sing glorious words to you, as we respond to the preaching of your word, fill us up with joy as we meditate on Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you do that for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.